Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 16, The Fall of Man. And in this episode, we're going to look closely at Genesis 3, 1 through 7, and to gather all of the themes that we have looked at so far in the first two chapters of Genesis to be able to gain as much clarity as possible to know just what it is that's going on in the fall of man. We're going to look particularly at the serpent's temptation and what temptation towards sin actually consists of, how temptation actually works, and ultimately what it tells us about ourselves in the real world today, and ultimately why every single man, woman, and child on the planet needs to be set free from the bondage we now find ourselves in. So I've, I'm very excited about this episode. Look forward to spending time with you or hearing your questions. So without any more delay, let's jump right in. I've been promising each one of you listeners for quite some time now, all through the podcast so far, that we will eventually get there in Genesis chapter 3. When we get to the fall of man... In Genesis chapter 3, when we make it to Genesis chapter 3 and we see what actually went wrong, we will be able to understand even more exactly why God set the world up to run and to function exactly as he did. And so here we are. We finally made it to Genesis 3. And I, first of all, want to begin by thanking those of you who are still listening. Um, I was wondering, actually, as I was making this podcast, if there were going to be any who would have dropped off and not being um, interested necessarily in staying down so deep for so long, looking at just maybe what appears to be minutia. But I'm hoping an episode like this one and the one to come that you'll see that those podcast episodes that I've chosen were done deliberately. I think that many of the themes that we looked at there are going to surface particularly here and clarifying for us a lot about why the kind of world we see today looks nothing like Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And I really can't emphasize that enough. Um, It saddens me that in even in churches today, so little time is taken to explore the beauty and the wonder and the amazement and the glory that was man with God in the in the original garden, because we simply don't know that world. And so one of the themes that we looked at right at the very beginning was simply the fact that mankind was created to rule the creation as God's image bearers. And part of being made in his image means that we were to rule the earth on his behalf. We were to rule as good creators, good leaders rather, of the creation that a good God put into place. He gave us his authority and said that the kinds of actions he demonstrates in the earth are going to be done through his image bearers, through those who are made in his image, and he handed us his authority. We looked at this when, we, when man was given the commission to work the ground and to keep it. We saw that it means to make it flourish, to enhance it, to make it better. We were given that privilege and that responsibility to make those decisions. We were given that task and that role. We caused things in the garden to grow, expand as they were naturally meant to. And we were to protect this garden against outside invasion. Now, our, our relationship with one another, with God, with ourselves, with this creation, it was built around trust and our confidence in God's goodness 
They were absolutely central to ruling his creation in the right way. The garden was to be a special place, a place of communion with God, with one another, with ourselves even, and a place, as we saw at the end of chapter 2, where nakedness in his presence and in one another's presence brought absolutely no shame, no embarrassment, no, oh, don't look at me, no temptation to hide perceived weaknesses or perceived flaws. We were able to rule the creation out of that unashamed state of communion. We were to live dependent upon God as the core of how we would rule this world well. And those are some of the themes that we looked at. Those are some of the themes that are central to understanding our place in the world. And so let me just briefly repeat them. We were to trust the loving character of God and therefore trust his words to us. We were given authority to rule the creation as God himself would. We were to live in dependence upon God. We were forbidden to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We were granted the freedom to experience communion with God and to enjoy his creation. And we were made naked and not ashamed. We were tasked then with taking that environment, that culture embedded in a garden and to spread, to work it, to cultivate, to spread that environment to the ends of the earth. That's what the intention was from the very, very beginning. We were to be a people so rooted and so connected to God and his goodness, understand ourselves well enough and our role well enough in that relationship and with that task in order to make the entire world a place just like the garden in Eden. What is very, very important and necessary and why I've chosen to repeat some of those things and mention them here is because all of these areas are directly attacked by this serpent in Genesis 3. So what I'd like to do is simply read for you what for many of you will be a very, very familiar few verses. It's Genesis 3, 1 through 7. But as you think about what you're hearing when I read this, think about some of these themes. Authority, dependence upon God, not being allowed to eat from a particular tree, working the ground, keeping it, so on. Trusting in the goodness of God and in his character and being naked and not ashamed. So here's what Genesis 3, 1 through 7 says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. 
and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, a couple things that I want to point out right right off the bat, and that is that in in verse 1, it simply says, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And I'm sorry if you were hoping I was going to spend a lot of time talking about this talking serpent and where he came from and how this actually fits into the story. And maybe we could look at some answers to those questions later, but that's not going to be my focus in this episode or the next. The Bible, as it's telling its own story once again, does not tell us here. We will find out later that that ancient one, the devil, who that ancient serpent, the devil from Revelation chapter 12, or we can read passages that take rulers and kings of the earth in Isaiah and in Ezekiel and compare them and contrast them in ways that sound eerily similar to something to do with this devil, this accuser, um, the Satan, as he is actually referred to numerous times in the Old Testament. Where does he come from? How does this happen? Genesis, as it simply is explaining reality, does not bother to tell us. And this is something that will unfold as the story unfolds, but I will, will say this. When we talked a little bit about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, evil simply being the deprivation or the absence of good or good turned in on itself and used for selfish ends instead of to bless the world, which is very much rooted in the character of who God is. And so things like that which is not good could in a very clear sense, in a very real sense, be something that is considered to be evil. And so I have a, a friend who oftentimes says to me that, um, you know, God seems to be setting the first man and the first woman up for failure by having that tree in the garden in the first place and giving them the opportunity to stumble into sin. And my response to that objection is that in order for man to actually rule as God himself would, he must be free to choose how he will rule. And so the presence of this serpent and where he comes from and exactly how it is that he's talking and Adam and Eve are not thrown off by it is not nearly as important as the ideas that he surfaces. And the ideas that he surfaces are going to attack and going to question and are going to address the very themes that I mentioned a moment moment ago. Can the goodness of God be trusted? Can his words be trusted? What does it mean to have authority? Does living in dependence upon God, is that a necessary thing? Why does God say you may not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What we are getting into in Genesis chapter 3 is no longer the what's of creation and the responsibilities of creation. We are getting into the why's. We are getting deep into motive, which will give us so much explanatory power to make sense of our own lives and of the rest of the world. And so what I do not want to do is talk necessarily at length about this serpent, but what I want to look at specifically is what it is that he says. And it's interesting that in verse 1, it says the serpent was more crafty, more sneaky, shifty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And as I pointed out in episode 8, introducing the Lord, 
really quickly in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, there's this shift between, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, to the Lord God. And I talked about in that episode that the Lord God brings about this intimate, close, personal, knowable, relational aspects of God, not in opposition to God who is distant and otherworldly and unknowable, but rather to say that God is both at the exact same time. God is both otherworldly and distant and his ways are unsearchable, but God is also personal and knowable and intimate. And at the times when he is most intimate and personal, the Old Testament will oftentimes attach Yahweh to the title and call him the Lord God. And we saw this in chapter 2, and it's repeated all the way through. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 8, we pick right back up with Adam and Eve hearing the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, I do not want to make too much of a deal of this. I, I have looked at a handful of passages, and this theme seems consistent in the passages that I've looked at so far in the Old Testament, but I am not going to claim that there is nowhere where this might appear not to be consistent with this theme. So I'm just going to present something that I want us to consider. But that is with this entire dialogue here between the serpent and the woman, the, the word the Lord drops out of the discussion. Um, if you listen to the dialogue it um, begins with the serpent saying to the woman, did God actually say? And the woman said to the serpent, well, God said. And the serpent said to the woman, well, God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent identifies God in the term that we saw in Genesis 1 as being the otherworldly, distant, unknowable God. But he attaches the commands that this same God gave, which God gave to, Ab to Adam in Genesis 2 under the heading of the Lord God, the personable, knowable, intimate Lord God. When the enemy questions these laws, he's doing so by making them sound strange, irrelevant, unrelated, outdated, completely other than what Eve needs to concern herself with, and Eve takes the bait. Eve does no longer look at the commands that the Lord God gave to the man and woman in chapter 2 as being good, healthy, holistic um, commands for their own well-being and for the well-being of the entire world. Now, the only reason I point that out is because I think the motive inserted from the serpent to the woman is clearly negative. And it's just an observation that's worth making a note of. It doesn't mean you should uh, be willing to die on this hill. I I'm not willing to die on this hill, but I did think it was helpful to point out that it is the Lord God, the up-close, personal, intimate, knowable Lord God, who is the one who gave these commands in the first place. And yet, as it is very easy to realize today, when someone gives a command or gives a rule, it automatically comes with a sense of, well, who put you in charge? Who gave you the authority to do these things? In fact, that's a question Jesus himself gets asked repeatedly 
by the religious leaders in the Gospels. Who gave you this authority? Who gave you the authority to act this way? Why? Well, because authority is something that is rarely trusted anymore. Or when you think you have the authority, you have no tolerance or any patience for anyone you think is a threat. And I think right here in this little example is something that we're going to see is that the serpent himself is interested in getting Adam, well, ultimately Eve, but Adam is standing right next to her, to her getting them to begin to question whether the one in authority over them really has their best interests in mind. Now, the very first question that the serpent asks the woman is telling on a number of levels. The first is he inserts the word actually, which automatically begins to make Eve doubt whether or not God really did say what the serpent is now proposing he said. So he says, Does, did God actually say? So let's, let's clarify these things, Eve. Is this really what God said? Is this really how it went down? And the same thing happens today. Is that really what that Bible passage means? Is that really how I am supposed to understand that? Did mom really tell me that I wasn't allowed to stay up past nine or was she just giving me a suggestion? This kind of reality is all over the place today. But the question that the serpent is imposing for Eve for did God actually say, he muddles this one as well. And he says, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, it's really, really telling because what God, the Lord God actually said was, you may eat of every tree in the garden, but this particular one you may not eat. But the serpent's question doesn't start there with all that man is allowed to do as an image bearer, authority uh, figure in the world, but rather it focuses in on the parts of that creation that aren't to be enjoyed, that aren't allowed to be experienced by man. And it not only focuses in on that, but then it magnifies that to such an extent that the question itself is, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So you see what's happened is the question itself is completely reversed. It's completely backwards in the way he approaches the woman. And of course, the woman gives him a response, but he's already begun to muddle things in Eve's mind. It starts to get a little fuzzy. It starts to get a little hazy. Eve isn't quite certain exactly what the Lord God may have said. And so she says to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And of course, there, there's just some back and forth, back and forth. There are really two trees in the midst of the garden. One of them, the tree of life, you most certainly may eat from. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the one that you may not eat from. The Lord God never tells the woman that you may not touch the tree. And I've heard some um, commentators or pastors or others, some of them say jokingly, but some of them are, are very serious that th this is the introduction of the first um, legalism that we find anywhere in the world. And, and I don't think that's too far of a stretch. Um, legalism, as many of you know, is simply 
inserting additional standards or additional requirements that sort of beef up and ensure that people are actually going to be obeying the law the way that you think it should be obeyed. And the Pharisees, the religious hypocrites, if you will, were experts at this, at guarding the things like the Sabbath by adding a lot of laws that forbid people to walk any more than a certain amount of feet um, on a given day in order to make sure that they didn't actually do something that qualified as work. And so here, somewhere along the line in Eve's mind, she's having this idea that, well, if I'm not allowed to eat from the tree, but I don't even go close enough to it to be able to touch it, then I would absolutely not ever find myself getting so far as to grab the fruit and put it in my mouth. And so this is the answer that she offers to the serpent, but the serpent's already got one leg up on her. The way temptation works is it comes at you and exposes what it is that you lack in order to show you why a life with what you lack, if you were to have that, your life would be better. And the way this works is by assuming that those in authority over you or those that have put you in the position that you've been in or those who have given you those commands are in fact people or institutions or organizations that cannot be trusted. It's so sad, but it's the way things work that the one in authority here is God. And this is in fact the one that the serpent challenges. And so Eve is not entirely sure she's on the right page. And so the enemy now feeds her two additional lies. And he says that what God said would happen won't really happen. You're not really going to die. And he says in verse four, you shall not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he says that what he said will happen won't really happen, and the reason it won't is because God's rule is threatened by you, and he doesn't want to share it. Now, as you and I have read in Genesis 1 particularly, we know that the very things that God says will happen actually do happen, and we've read it. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God separated the light from the day and the light he called day and the darkness he called night. So what God says actually does happen and then those things are labeled as good. And so we know that according to Genesis 1 and 2 that that pattern is something that holds consistently. And yet the serpent is now also implying that the way God rules his creation is out of fear. That God gives commands because he's afraid, because he's greedy, because he's selfish. And as I said in the very beginning, that trusting the loving character of God and therefore trusting his words to us is a fundamental characteristic of what it means to rule well on his behalf. The character of God is under absolute attack here. And it will continue to be throughout the history of the world. I actually had a friend ask me a number of months ago, why is the God of the Old Testament so mean and Jesus is so nice? And maybe when we get to the section in Genesis 3 where I offered him an answer, I will tell you 
how I rationalize and answer a question like that. It does come with a lot of baggage, and it is a difficult kind of question to navigate. But what I find that's central in a question like that is the fact that what we see in the world does not often line up with what we read in the Bible. And so part of the point of this podcast, again, is to help make those things clearer. So right here, the enemy is actually attacking Eve's understanding of authority. We've got an authority figure in God himself over Adam and Eve, but now the enemy is attacking, he, he first of all is attacking our authority, and he does so by saying this, if you were really given authority over this earth, why wouldn't God allow you to eat from that one tree? Did he not make you in his image, Eve? Did he not make you to be ruler? How can you rule if you're not able to eat from that one tree? He's holding out on you. And then he turns and attacks God's authority. If God were really a good ruler, he'd allow you to eat from that one tree. You see, the temptation of this serpent right now is not doing anything. He's just raising questions and causing doubt and bringing in ideas that are tempting Eve to misunderstand authority. The consequences God spoke about happening, they won't really happen. The reason God forbids you from exercising dominion over that one tree is because he's scared. He's scared that you'll become just like him and he doesn't want that. Throw off the bondage, Eve. Real authority means freedom. It means freedom from someone else telling you what to do and what not to do. So go ahead, Eve. Choose for yourself. And so the enemy is introducing here God's commands as the freedom from the good life, not the freedom to it. In other words, God gives you commands to rob you of freedom. They're a freedom from doing the kinds of things that would otherwise make you happy. And yet as you and I read Genesis 1 and 2, once again, describing a world we have never known, we see that the truth is that God's commands are actually a freedom to experience life with Him and with His world in the best possible way. His reason for forbidding Adam and Eve from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is because that knowledge is best reserved for Him. And our lives are most satisfied when we leave that category entirely to Him. But the enemy invites decisions to be made independently of God. And here's what verse 6 says. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now you may read a verse like verse 6 and blow right past the first few words, but I would encourage you not to. When you read the phrase, so when the woman saw, you need to stop. Because seven times in Genesis 1 and 2, we heard the phrase, and God saw that it was good. 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 And And this is the first time that anyone other than God is seeing something and labeling it good. And here is what verse 6 says again. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, 
This is how it all happens. It says that it saw that it was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now, three things are listed here. Good for food, a delight to the eyes and desire to be make one wise. But do you remember Genesis 2, 9? When the Lord God is causing trees to grow up out of the ground in verse nine of chapter two, it says, out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Wow. So good for food, delicious, delight to the eyes, aesthetically beautiful, are both gifts of God. Only to be enjoyed, however, if Adam and Eve trust in God's goodness and do what he says. Eve's downfall, and therefore man's downfall, comes in the last phrase. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. You see, the enemy in questioning the goodness of God, in questioning whether or not man really has authority from God or whether God's authority is acting in man's best interest, he has convinced Eve to seek wisdom apart from God. Eve already knew what wisdom was. It was in listening to the voice of God, trusting him, fearing him, and leaning only on him And you get this all through the scriptures. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Solomon tells us. Or two chapters later, when he says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. But the enemy convinces Eve that authority means ruling over the creation as she sees fit. And she takes the bait and shares it with Adam. And they both agree with the enemy's understanding of authority and decide that ruling over the creation as they see fit is better than exercising their authority on someone else's behalf. And that's where the story takes us. It is man and woman defining for themselves what it means to rule well and in so doing have thrown off their dependence upon God for the wisdom in just exactly how they should go about doing it. And David Benner in one of my favorite books called The Gift of Being Yourself very succinctly says it like this. The core of the lie that Adam and Eve believed was that they could be like God without God. And that is exactly right. And the entirety of the biblical story will be an unfolding of just what it looks like to watch time and time and time again for human beings to attempt to rule the world well without God. And that is all the time we have for this particular episode Next week, I promise we will pick up this discussion as we see just what exactly happened as a result of this. Were there really eyes opened? What did those eyes opening actually mean? What does it mean for you and me today to live in the consequences of this decision? And how do we hope for a world that will one day be renewed and will wipe away all of the wrong that is just everywhere in this world? And so until next time, 
Talk to you then. To those of you already supporting this podcast with a monthly subscription, I'd like to personally thank you. And if you are not already a supporter, but you'd like to contribute to Unbinding the Bible, just click the link in this episode's description and it will take you to the page where you'll be able to do just that. As usual as well, if you have any questions or any comments that you would like to interact with me about, please feel free to send me an email at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. I hope you have a great week. See you next time.